The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning, everyone. All right. Good morning. Good to, good to have you here as we worship together. I'd invite you this morning to open your Bibles up. Today, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. The text should also be in the worship guide you received. If you're new, Luke is in the New Testament. It's the third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And the next two weeks, this week and the next week on Easter, we're going to be looking at um, a collection of parables that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. This morning, we're going to look at two of them, which have a lot of similarities. We're going to look at these two, and then next week, we're going to wrap it up by looking at the third parable in this story of Luke chapter 15. Have uh, Have you ever been lost before, like... Not just like lost where like your spouse is like, would you actually look for directions on your phone or actually stop and ask someone? But like lost, like you were actually kind of terrified for a split second. Like you weren't quite sure exactly what was going on. I remember when I was young, I don't remember exactly old, probably eight, maybe nine years old. So I, my family grew up riding bikes together. That's kind of where one of the ways I get my love of cycling. But we were out on a mountain bike ride together. And it was back in the Midwest in a very kind of beautiful rolling hills and trees in the summer. And it was a trail that we had ridden dozens of times before. It was not some new place. And I remember as our family was going through, I happened to be in the rear and I came around a corner and the trail kind of came to a T. And right before I had gotten there, my family had gotten just ahead of me. So here I am, I'm pulling around the trail splits in half and I pull up and I don't see anyone. And I'm eight years old and suddenly I stop and I look around and I'm like, mom, dad, and I hear nothing. And then in my head, I'm like, was that an animal over there? Like suddenly, like you start to get spooked real quick, right? And suddenly like the trees that seemed beautiful before, like seem really tall. And you're like, I'm in the middle of nowhere and I've been abandoned by my parents. Like what is, you know, I'm like, yeah, as a kid, it's scary. And I had no idea where to go. Fortunately, I knew like, hey, if I just stay here, someone will probably come back eventually to check on me. So I stayed there. And after what seemed like forever, it was probably like 45 seconds. My, my dad came around the corner and was like, oh, hey, we were actually literally right around the corner from where I was. But that's that moment of being utterly helpless. Like I can't find my way. I have no idea where to go. I am completely lost. And the reality is, is that in our spiritual condition, How we are described, all of us, as we enter into this world as those who are lost, totally lost, helplessly lost. And our only hope as those who are spiritually lost, our only hope is being found by God. That's true of all of us this morning, that apart from Jesus, we are totally lost. This morning, we're going to look at these two parables that focus on this idea of something being lost and someone going to seek after it and what happens as a result. So Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 1, says this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That would be Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. And so we have the the setting here, which is important to understand as we jump into these two parables this morning of these two different groups 
that are approaching Jesus, a mixed audience that he tells this parable to. On one half, we have tax collectors and sinners, right? They're kind of lumped together. Sinners meaning those probably at least who just weren't very observant. So you wouldn't see them at the temple regularly. They weren't outwardly practicing their Jewish faith. Maybe they were living very promiscuous or or sinful lives, but they just generally weren't very religiously devout. They would have been into this category of sinners, And lumped with them, which are the most hated people of the time in the Jewish world, were the tax collectors. Tax collectors. Tax collectors were particularly hated for two reasons. Number one, they were known for their shady business practices. Right? So they would collect taxes as people would flow through. And they would say, say your bill was $40. They would say, no, you actually need to pay $50. And if you tried to threaten or to underpay, they could have a guard come and arrest you. And what would they do? They would always overcharge to pocket off of other people and make extra money for themselves. They were known for this. And we see several examples of this throughout the New Testament. But not only were they known for their bad business practices, tax collectors were hated because they were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. Rome was the occupying force of the world, and Rome was over Israel at this time. And you were seen as a traitor if you were a Jewish person who not only was not resisting Rome, but they actually worked for Rome. And so these are a hated, a looked down upon group, the tax collectors and the sinners, but they were drawing close to Jesus. So that's one side. The other side are the Pharisees and the scribes. The religious elite, the people who, if the temple was open, they were there. In fact, many of this group had a large chunk of the Old Testament completely memorized. You know that section in the Bible reading plan that you can hardly get through? Like they memorized it. These are people who were elites, they had knowledge, they had attendance, they had all of these religious credentials, and they were complaining about these sinners, these tax collectors that Jesus was allowing to come and hear him. And so it's in this mixed audience that Jesus tells these stories. Now, these two groups could not be more opposite. They are further opposite than Democrat versus Republican. They're further apart versus Apple versus Android. And get this, they are further apart than Giants fans and Dodger fans. I know you didn't think it could happen, but I believe they were, all right? It was a huge divide between these two groups. Verse three, so Jesus told them, this mixed audience, this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He starts off the parable, which is a story with deep spiritual truths to it by saying, well, what man? Meaning this would be the ordinary response of the, in the individual in this setting, in this society. Now, this man as a shepherd would have been upper to middle class, upper 
excuse me, middle to middle upper class in their society. A hundred sheep was a large flock. This is not someone in destitute poverty. But still, despite the fact that they have a large flock, when they would have gathered them together, notice the one being gone. He said it would have been standard behavior. You would have put the 99 in open grazing country and you would have gone to find the one. You would have left the 99 because this one sheep has wandered away. This idea is he looks until he finds it, meaning that it's intent looking. Maybe it's been caught in some bushes. It's fallen into a hole. It's been trapped somewhere that it can't climb out of. But the shepherd goes and he looks until finally he finds it. And when he finds it, it says, verse five, that he lays it on his shoulders. It's an image of compassion. He doesn't drive it back to the flock by whipping it back over to the other 99. But it's this tender care and compassion as he lays it across his shoulders and carries forward. You can kind of picture this maybe harmed and and hurt sheep as the shepherd brings it back. And then when he arrives, he throws a celebration. Right? He is overjoyed, and out of his joy, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and together says, Rejoice with me, for I have found this sheep that was lost. The second parable, verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, She calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, the start, what woman, meaning this would be the standard practice of anyone who would find themselves in this situation. Now, most likely being a single woman, it most likely here is referring to a widow, someone who would be finding themselves on the lower class, the poorer class of society. And he highlights that she has 10 silver coins. The silver coin likely represented a dollar's worth of wages. This was most likely her life's savings. It's not a lot. It's a very small amount. But saying, if you only had this amount and you lost 10% of your life savings, what would you do? Of course, you would go and you would look after it. Now, we have to remind ourselves that their houses back then that they would be looking at look very different than your and my house today. This woman, most likely, if she's anything like the houses back then, would have lived in a single-roomed hut. The floor would have certainly been dirt. Probably the only light to come in was the door. Meaning that it's not like you just flip on the lights and look around in the corners to find this coin. It means that you had to light a candle and get down on your hands and knees and search intently and move around the dirt on the ground until you finally see that little glisten in the corner as it catches your eye. And after, it seems like hours, maybe days of looking, finally this coin has been found. Intense looking after it. And just like the story before, Right? When she finds it, what is her response? To call together her friends and her neighbors. It says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost. Rejoicing with friends and neighbors over the lost item being found. This morning as we look at these two parables, I want us to notice three truths about God. Three truths about God that are contained in these two parables this morning. The first is this, is that God seeks after us. That God is a God who seeks after us. Our spiritual condition apart from God is that we are lost. 
like this sheep, like this coin, we are helplessly lost. And it would not be found if the shepherd did not go out and look, if the woman did not go out and search diligently, so too we would not be fine. We could not find our way back to God. What we needed was for God to go and to seek after us. This is an idea that's seen throughout all of scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 34, it says this, for thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when his among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places that they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. It was a common metaphor for God to refer to his people as sheep and he being the shepherd, which just gives another illustration of this example that Jesus uses. The God saying, I am like that shepherd who loses the one but goes out and seeks after until I find them and bring them home to me. Later on in Ezekiel 34, it says, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. So this idea of God not just being a passive bystander, waiting until people get their own act together, waiting until people realize it and trying to find him until he makes a move helps us put into context what we celebrate this week, right? That this week is, is Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday and we look forward with anticipation as we celebrate the crucifixion on Friday. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus go through all this pain and suffering? It's because his heart is to seek after you and me and our spiritual lostness. See, Jesus summarized his own mission, why he came to this world later on in the gospel of Luke. In Luke 19, Jesus says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. He came for us, the spiritually lost, which is all of us apart from God. And Jesus's mission, why he went to the cross, why he did all this is because we are lost and we needed him. And he came to seek and to save those of us who are lost. As a parent for almost two years now, kids have changed my life, my child, in many ways. And I knew that there were some expected ways that my life would change, but then there's also unexpected ways that when I became a parent, I didn't realize how my life was about to change. One of those unexpected ways, especially being a parent of a toddler, that I did not realize when my daughter was born and how much fun it is for her to take things that belong to me and to hide them all over our house. There was one time a few months ago where it was about time for me to leave and I went to grab my keys and I headed for work and I went to grab my keys and my keys weren't there. I say, Kristen, have you seen my keys? She's like, no, where did you leave them? I'm like, I left them on the coffee table. And then we look over and sitting on the couch is Aria with a smile on her face. And I'm like, oh no. Of course, they ask her where she does it and she just goes, dad, dad, and smiles at me like, oh no, what did you like? She, she's not going to tell me, right, where the keys are. And so, I mean, your keys are something of value, so you've got to find your keys. And so you start looking in the obvious area, right? The couch all comes apart. It's not there. We start looking all over the house. I didn't make my meeting at, on time. I had to text in late. So finally, in the bottom of a little ball pit she has are my keys, a perfect hiding spot from dad and from mom. Right, but I had to search intently. I had to go and look all over the house, digging through everything until I finally found my keys. And God being a God who seeks after us, it's a reminder that he doesn't just give a quick glance around. 
and say, okay, who's got their life together? Who wants a better thing? All right, you come follow me. That God seeks after us through our own desperation and our own lostness. Some of us are lost in our sin for years, in our excuses. Some of us are lost, drowning ourselves in our work, in the pressure of life. We're running away from God, but God seeks after us. The shepherd says that he looks after the sheep until he finds it, meaning he wasn't going to give up no matter how hard it was. Describing the woman, it says she seeks diligently until she finds it. God is a God who seeks after us. See, it's amazing when we think of our own lives and of our own stories, often a phrase that's used in in people who have met Jesus is that we say, well, it took me until so-and-so until I finally found God, right? And that's, that's a good phrase, this idea that, that I found God. But, but in a sense, when we find God, we realize that he was the one seeking after us the whole time. When we find God, we realize he was seeking after us the whole time. To me, it's helpful to think of us seeking after God, but God actually seeking after us in this way. Imagine you're at the store with a kid. If you don't have kids, just imagine you have kids right now that's four or five years old, right? And you're at Target and there's lots of amazing things at Target. And so you're walking around at Target and something catches your glance. And so you stop and look at it and you see your kid kind of wandering on the aisle and you're like, all right, no big deal. And you look at something and then you turn and they're gone. And you're like, no worries. They're in the next aisle over. And so you walk the next aisle over and they're not there. You're like, okay, well, they must have walked one more over and you walk one more over and they're not there. And suddenly you're like, oh no, where's my kid? Like, where have they run off to? What? And so you start racking your brain, right? Where could they be? Where could they be? You start asking people around you, you're like trying not to panic, right? But you're, you're asking people, hey, have you seen so-and-so? This is what they're wearing. Have you, have you seen them? And like time seems to slow down. It's like panic sets in. Then finally you turned around a corner and out comes your kid with a big smile on their face. And what do they say? Mommy, daddy, I found you. And you're like, if you only knew how hard and the panic in my life as I was doing everything looking after you. I think that's what it's like when we say to God, I found you. He smiles and says, if you only knew how hard and how long I've been seeking after you that I've been looking for you. I've been seeking after you your whole life. Yes, you found me because I'm the one who has been seeking after you. God is a God who seeks after us. The second truth about God in this passage is that God places great value on us. God places great value on us. The only reason that you upend everything, that you pause everything and look for something as if it's actually worth finding. No one puts their life on pause because they lost a penny. But if you lose your wallet and all your credit cards, you're gonna do everything you can to get it back. Why? Because one is of great value. One is of very little value. And remember the mixed audiences to which Jesus is addressing here. The religious elite and the sinners and tax collectors. And what Jesus is reminding both of these people of both of these parties is that everyone matters to God. Both groups have value. Both groups matter to God. See, we relentlessly seek after things that we value in our lives, especially if it's something of value that we have lost. We will relentlessly 
seek after. And in fact, it makes plots of great movies of someone who has something of great value that has been lost and then going on a journey seeking after that which is lost. Came to mind this week, one of the greatest movies ever, especially animated movies, the classic Finding Nemo. Think of Finding Nemo. The Finding Nemo starts off, right? You have Marlin and Coral, and they're in their brand new home in their reef with all of their eggs there as they're about to celebrate. All these fish are going to be born. They're going to be parents together when a barracuda comes in and attacks their home. Marlin is hit and knocked unconscious, and he wakes up, and his wife Coral is gone. All of the eggs, it seems like, have all disappeared until he looks down, and he finds just that one of course, is born, and that's Nemo. And so that's why when Nemo swims away and is taken away by someone, why the whole movie is of a father's love for his son, because he values him so much. It's all he has. Everything else is gone. And that's why the story is so compelling, because we see this picture of someone who places someone of total value, that they're willing to do anything, anything to go and to seek after them because of the immense value that is placed upon them. Don't miss this. The reason God seeks after you is because you're worth finding. The reason God seeks after you is because you matter to God. You matter to him. You are of great worth and value. That's why he relentlessly pursues us for years because we mean so much to him. Regardless of our family upbringing, our race, our ethnicity, our sexual orientation, our political preferences, we all matter to God. He places great value on us, which is why he seeks after us. So much of our lives, for all of us, is about trying so much to prove our worth to find our worth, to prove our worth. Sometimes we try and spend our lives proving our worth to others. Sometimes we spend our lives trying to prove our own worth to ourselves. And we feel like we have to do enough. We have to achieve a status. We have to have set certain goals that if we get this, then we can feel like we are of value. Then we have arrived. If only this morning, all of us could see ourselves as how God sees us. Do you see you as God sees you? of value, of worth, of someone that he would send his son to come and to die and to take your place for your sin because he loves you that much. He values you that much. See, all of us matter to God. There's a, another thing that's in here in telling this parable to these mixed audiences Right? The sinners, the tax collectors on one half, and the religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes on the other half. There's this, I think there's, there's always a danger. There's always a danger for the religiously educated to think that they are better off than the others. I don't know what it is about human nature, but, but as we grow in knowledge, it's easy for it to lead to pride in our lives. See, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been the people who were always at worship on the weekend. They would have been the people serving and leading the classes. They would have outwardly looked the part. But the problem was that pride had crept into their lives and it actually caused them to think of themselves as better than other people. We must guard our hearts to make sure that we would never think of ourselves as better than others. 
See, the, the sign of the gospel taking root in our hearts is not religious pride of how much better we are, but it's humility that God in his love and grace chased after us and our sin. No matter how long you've been attending or how much you serve or how much you give or how much you've done, it doesn't make us better than others because everyone is of value. The Pharisees, they were of value. So were the tax collectors and the sinners. We need to watch for that religious pride in our life. So God seeks after us because we are such great value to him. The third truth about God in this passage is that God rejoices over us. God rejoices over us when we are found, when the lost have been found, God rejoices. Notice that in both of these examples, a party is thrown. Friends and neighbors are brought in, a celebration happens. God isn't just a participant in this party in heaven when one sinner is found, but he leads the party. He throws the party of celebration. Notice the the occasion for this celebration in heaven. It's the same word in both parables. In verse seven, it says, I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then in verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So what is repentance? Because that's key to these two stories. That's key to understanding what is this cause for celebration in heaven? I've been greatly helped by one theologian who helped break down repentance into three different kind of steps, three different things of true repentance. The first sign of true repentance is that we realize our sin. The first sign of real repentance happens when you realize that you are a sinner, that you have done wrong things. We see this in this contrast in verse seven. She says this, just so I tell you, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The verse looks puzzling at first until you remember the context in which he's telling it, that he's talking to a mixed group and Pharisees were present. I imagine as he talks about the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance, he's staring the Pharisees in the eye. And I don't know if they used it back in the days 2,000 years ago, but if they used air quotes, Jesus would use air quotes here. Over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Meaning this, you guys think you're so much better than everyone else because of your religious rituals, because of things you do, that you don't even realize how sinful you are and that you have, think you have no need for God. They have no need to repent. They have no need. They don't even see the sin in their lives because they are so blinded to it by their own self-righteousness that they view themselves as totally fine as they are. They're not actually righteous. They're just righteous in their own eyes. So God's not, God doesn't throw a party by people who think of themselves as self-righteous. What does he do? One person who realizes their sin and repents. That's what the party is thrown for. So we first, the first step in repentance is to realize our sin. The second is to feel the weight of our sin. That, that we, we understand that it is a holy thing before God, that we have violated the relationship we have with him. It's not that we live just in constant guilt and sorrow and shame, but we should feel remorse over the sin in our lives. It should break our hearts. Even as Christians, it should break our hearts that we sin against 
God. We should feel the weight of our sin and feel the weight of what it costs for Jesus to pay for our sin. As we celebrate this week, we we have to learn to feel that weight. And thirdly, after we've realized our sin, felt the weight of it, thirdly, we have to decide to ask for forgiveness and to turn from our sin. We ask God to forgive us from our sin, and then we commit to turning from our sin. See, repentance, literally in the word, it means a change of direction. It says that this, my life was at one time headed this way. This was the trajectory of my life towards sin and selfishness and my own desires. And when we repent, we ask God for forgiveness. We say, now my life's target is this way. The goal is to always move this way. Do some days we take a step back? Do some days we take two or three steps back? Yes, but our target is still towards Jesus, no longer towards our sin. And then we have decidedly turned away and our goal now is to live for God. And so he says, over this is what the party in heaven begins with. This is what causes God such great rejoicing. He rejoices when the lost come home. As Christians, which most of us gathered this morning are, should not our lives be all about joining in with God and what brings him great joy. If you think about it, the the people in your life who you really love, nothing brings you more happiness than seeing joy in their life, right? Nothing brings you more happiness than the people who you love when they have great joy. I see this all the time for my daughter. She's of the expressive age. She's just before two. And it's the little things in life that she absolutely loves, And I saw this even this morning, one of Arya's favorite, favorite things to do, which is good because it's all the entertainment she'll get even when she's a teenager, is to open the garage door. A thrilling thing that I provide for her as a parent. We saw this this morning at about 8.30. I walk out the door, holding her in my arms. She reaches over, the door kind of sticks sometimes. So she takes out her one finger, she kind of points at the button. And then when she finally gets it and pushes it hard enough for it to open, it's not just like a yay. It is, as I'm holding her, I feel this. It is full body, legs and everything like clenched and just a yeah, like total. It's like she won the lottery. It's like the most joy ever expressed. And it's every single time she opens the garage door. She gets the greatest thing in the world. Now, what on a Sunday as we're rushing out, trying to get to church, what's the fastest thing to do? It's for me to rush out and hit the button, get her in the car seat, because we got to get going. I'm late. We got to get to church on time. But what do I always pause to make sure to give time to do? I, I make sure she can do it. Why? Because nothing brings me happiness like seeing her have such great joy. As Christians, nothing should bring us more happiness than seeing God be brought joy. And his great joy is found when the lost come home, when the lost come back to him. So I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Bay Area is known for a lot of different things. And some of you have lived here for so long, maybe you don't even realize the context on which it is. Bay Area is known for its tech, right? All the technology around here. We're known for our great weather. We're known for the amazing beauty of nature and the beaches and the forests we have around here. We're known for our affordable housing prices. Oh, wait, no, no, not not that, sorry. There's another thing that the Bay Area is known for in the most recent studies that have looked at the most unchurched areas in the United States. Unchurched meaning someone who in the last six months has not once gone to one religious service of any setting. They found the most unchurched area in the entire country is the Bay Area. 
Over 61% of people in the San Francisco, San Jose, Bay Area have not gone inside a church or to any sort of religious service in the last six months. It's number one, and we have everyone else by several percentage points, that we are the most unchurched area in the country. They also do a study, the same part of it, looking at de-churched people, meaning as people who at one time, whether that's when they were kids or as teenagers or in early adulthood, at some point in their life, they were a part of some religious gathering. They regularly were a part of something, but they have not gone to anything in at least six months. The number one de-churched place in the entire United States, the Bay Area. 57% of people, according to this, say, I used to be involved somewhat regularly, but now I haven't gone to anything See, we are living right here in Morgan Hill in one of the biggest mission fields in the entire country. When we think of reaching the lost for Jesus, we don't need to think of going somewhere else. We need to think of going home, going to work, going to school, because that's where the lost are. I want to challenge us this week. If God has brought such great joy by the lost coming home and finding him. I challenge all of us this week to do something with the intentionality of sharing Jesus with someone. To reach out to someone with the intentionality of sharing Jesus with someone. Now, of all the weeks to assign this, to ask you to do this, this is a pretty easy one. I don't know if you realize it, but there's kind of this big thing next Sunday. It's called Easter, all right? And if 57% of people who don't go in our area If 57 of them used to, most of them didn't leave church because they absolutely hate everything that religion stands for and want nothing to do with it. Most of them probably got a bad experience. They got out of rhythms and certainly coming out of COVID, they just stopped doing it and there was no reason. And it can be intimidating. You may not sense this, especially if you've gone here for a while, but if you haven't been to church in over a year, it's really hard to walk through those doors and have no idea what it's gonna look like. No idea who's gonna be in there. But you know what's a lot easier? If you walk in with your neighbor, if you walk in with your friend. Because, you know, I, don't, I won't know a lot of people, but I'll have at least one person who knows me who's walking in with me. Now, is getting someone to come to church next week going to, like, automatically save them? Probably not. We're going to certainly share the gospel, so I hope it does. But that's not the end of your responsibility. But if God is a God who seeks after the lost, who values them so much that he sent his son to die for them so that they could have life. As followers of Jesus, should that not be what our lives are all about? But partnering with what God is doing and making it our heart's mission as well to see the lost, find hope, find life, find healing that's only found in Jesus. So this week, would you do something for that one person. I don't know who it is, but just right now in the calm of your hearts, ask God, who who is that? At work, at school, which neighbor? And reach out to them because the reality is all of us are lost apart from Jesus. And we live in an area that's filled with people who have no hope, but they can find hope because God is a God who seeks after those who are lost. God, we thank you We thank you that you do indeed seek after those who are lost. And as 
as I look out here this morning, God, we could sit here for hours and share stories from our lives of how we were lost, lost in our sin, lost in despair, lost in darkness, lost in so many different things, but you sought after us. God, and our lives have been changed because of it. God, I ask that you would burden our hearts to see the people around us, to see the lost the way you do, of such great worth, of great value. God, give us the courage this week to take that step, whatever it is, for whoever it is that you're laying on our hearts. God, that you love those who are far from you and help us to catch a little glimpse of your heart, to partner with you in seeking and saving those who are lost. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.